you want to solve the problem in North Korea, give those people iPhones so they can start watching YouTube. (laughs) Because you watch a couple of YouTube videos and you look around at your, you know, barren neighborhood where you're eating like uh, uh, water with salt in it is your dinner. And you watch a YouTube video of people eating steaks and McDonald's and Subway and you think to yourself, something's not right here. Yeah. And it's not going to take real long before those people say, look, we're doing this wrong. And I don't, you probably heard that story about Gorbachev when Gorbachev came to America uh-huh. and went in. Have you heard the story? No. Gorbachev came to America from the Soviet Union and he went into like a, a, a Vons or whatever supermarket he went into. And he went into the cereal aisle uh-huh. and saw that there was 390 different kinds of cereal in there. And he realized that they needed to stop what they were doing. Because you know how many different types of cereal there was in the Soviet Union? One. You know, that's it. And when you try and control everything, it doesn't work. And and actually, I remember you calling me up one day. You're like, hey, this. He's like, I was listening to this podcast. This applies to everything. Because, like, it's the same with government. I'm like, yes, it is. You can't control everything. If one person tries to make all the decisions, it doesn't work. to the Bitcoin Noted Podcast. Or wait, no, we're calling it the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. I always screw that up. This is your host, uh, Pierre Rochard, and uh, also Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. How are you? Doing well. We have here today uh, Drew from Unchained Capital. Drew, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. So uh, Unchained just came out with a new... uh, Would you call it a new product or like a new feature? It's a new open source tool that we hope is useful on its own and uh, useful for our existing customers as well. It's a product in the sense of we support it and we're proud of it and we want people to use it, but it's a free open source uh, piece of code as well. Awesome. Uh, Yeah. So do you want to give us the elevator pitch of what problem it's solving and uh, how it works? It's an open source tool to help you do multi-sig yourself with your own hardware wallets, your uh, own software applications. Uh, hopefully, over time, an increasing number of things that hold keys will be compatible with Caravan. Um, and why did we release it? One, because everyone should be able to do multi-sig. Uh, it's built into Bitcoin. It's historically been too difficult and required working with companies or being a technical programmer type yourself. And we wanted to lower the bar um, without having, you know, without making people uh, have to work with us directly or, or having to pay for the privilege of just being safer with their with their Bitcoin. So that was one of the main reasons to get it out. And if you're someone that has Bitcoin and you're protecting it with one key, you're already doing better than a lot of people, but you could be doing even better. You could be using multi-sig. 
And so Caravan lets you do that on your own terms, however you'd like. And it's really transparent, uh, which helps you learn about multi-sig. That's maybe a secondary goal too. I'm a developer and there are things I don't think I quite understood about how SegWit and multi-sig script works until I could kind of interactively play around with it inside of Caravan's interface, which makes that really easy to do. Um, so that's kind of a secondary goal is to educate um, developers and kind of be a tool for them, actually. Caravan is very flexible and allows you to do, uh, encourages you to follow standards, but it allows you to do some crazy things that are not standards compliant. Um, and that is uh, nice when you're trying to recover from some wallet that isn't standards compliant, let's say. So it's kind of a good tool for developers in that way as well. And then third, this is maybe in a way how why it's a little bit of a feature for Unchained Capital users. Um, in addition to being an open source product for, for others, is that uh, when you use Unchained, uh, you've historically for a long time uh, had the ability to you know, use your own keys to protect your vaults or your loans, your, your loan collateral. Um, and we've provided uh, some tools, uh, uh, open source for a long time, to help you spend uh, directly from the addresses on the blockchain that store your funds even in the absence of our website, our expectation and indeed the practice is that usually you'll just use Unchained Capital's website to access your funds since you have the keys and that's really, you know, that's what you need to do it. Um, but in case our site were to disappear, there have been some tools we have been, we've published previously. Unfortunately, those tools were command line only and they were a little hard to use, um, especially if you imagine the reality of that scenario that let's say we have disappeared. It's, it's absurd. We're not going to disappear. But, you know, if we were to like, well, you're, you're scared, you're, you're, you're freaking out about your, your Bitcoin. And the last thing you want to engage in, if you're not technical, is some command line script. Maybe if you're a programmer, that's what you prefer. And that's cool. You probably have all sorts of options. But for the average person who's just able to interact with a hardware wallet, what was the right tool to help them be able to do this kind of external self-sovereign recovery? Um, and Caravan is part of our answer for that, that now we feel like we have a really easy to use tool that works. It's totally free and open source. You can download a copy of it in advance. You can host your own copy for free on GitHub. Um, and you can use that tool to check the ownership of your addresses. You can use it to spend funds from addresses you hold in Unchained. Um, and, you know, you, we see if you're an Unchained customer, it's probably easier just to go through the Unchained platform. We, we do all the bookkeeping of BIP32 paths and addresses and stuff for you. It make it a lot easier. But it's nice to know that you have this external tool that uh, is also really high quality um, and tested by us and, and increasingly, hopefully, by the community out there uh, that you can use to recover your funds from our platform. And, and, and again, as I said previously, it's not just for recovering funds from our platform. It's an extremely flexible tool, and you can use it to recover funds from a variety of platforms. So just kind of summarizing overall, there are three main kind of reasons we built this. One is just let's make multi-sig free and accessible for everybody. Uh, two... Um, let's help educate developers and give them tools to debug and do recovery. And three, let's really make um, you know Caravan a recovery tool specifically for Unchained's platform, but also generically for other wallets. Yeah, that's great. There's this issue, I think, for for Bitcoiners when uh, you know you listen to great podcasts and read about multisig, you know, and you hear Michael Flaxman, for instance, on Stefan Lavera go on about you know how great multisig is, uh, and then you go to actually create multi-sig and you realize just how difficult it is um, in, in prior to the to the existence of Caravan. Um, so Caravan is, um, it's, the, it's the first thing that comes to my mind that's just an easy interface for multi-sig um, for an end user. Um, so that alone is very exciting uh, just to even get the ball moving um, on this front. Yeah, no, that's what we hope too. 
Uh, so something I, I feel like I should have asked before is uh, if you wanted to describe like Unchained's business and and you know what what your platform does for for Bitcoiners. Yeah, I mean, and and it'll make a lot of sense why we're excited to build and release products like uh, Caravan as a result. Uh, so Unchained, I would say, is. Is we are a technology company um, that works a lot on custody. That's kind of our core competence and mission, and it's probably something we think about a lot all day. But the way we sell custody is through financial services that we build for Bitcoin holders. Uh, we don't believe, and it's clear because we're releasing open source products that help you achieve multi-sig custody for free, we don't believe that custody is something that we necessarily need to be charging a huge amount to our customers for. Uh, what what we what it feels fair to charge for are things like participating in customer quorums, being a backup in somebody's protection of their funds. That that's something that's worth paying for, because you want to know that the person you're paying to do that is, or the company you're paying to do that is doing it well. That they know who you are, that they're able to confirm your identity and help you recover your funds. That's a that's kind of not really custody. That's quorum participation. And similarly, when we give loans to Bitcoiners, we're helping them achieve a little bit more financial security in that they're getting to not sell their Bitcoin and they're not having to suffer tax consequences. But at the same time, they're getting to participate in the custody of their collateral by continuing to hold one out of the three keys we use to protect it. So again, custody is crucial and central to the way we deliver all of our products. But we also believe it's not something we directly charge for. So our model is a little bit of a mixture between financial services and custody. And I think in that sense, we're a little bit unique as a company. We're really pushing this narrative that that um, custody is a right and financial services are useful and you shouldn't have to give up your right to self-custody just because you want financial services. That seems to be the choice that most of the rest of the market is, is offering Bitcoiners. And we're saying you can have both things. You can continue to have excellent multi-signature, cold storage, best-in-class custody, which you should demand as a Bitcoiner, and you can have some of that funds be in a different address that's being used to collateralize a loan, or in the future, maybe a fixed interest or income account or insurance products. We think there's a lot of headroom, even in just the Bitcoin protocol, to engineer um, the kinds of constructions that in other asset classes like Ethereum, you might label DeFi. And in a sense, they are because they're collaborative custody uh, between parties being used to encode the legal relationships for actual financial instruments. So they're kind of like a dumb Bitcoiner version of DeFi, but I think that's why they're effective. And that's why we're able to actually support them today and scale them up. And so just as a follow on, I mean, you can see why Caravan is important to us. Multi-signature is literally the way that we sell all our financial services. And it's important to us to give our partners um, and our customers way better tools for dealing with that, um, with all the issues that multi-sig creates. In the process of making this, you said that um, you learned a lot about um, SegWit. What were some surprises that you learned about uh, multi-sig and Bitcoin transactions uh, because of making this? Well, just thinking about like, for example, um, one of the things I like about the Caravan um, create a multi-sig address uh, interface is once you put in the three public keys that you, or let's, let's start with a two of three model, Caravan allows you to do pretty arbitrary M of N combinations. Let's go with like a two of three, since that's actually the same model that Unchained uses. Um, you need, you're going to need three public keys for that. Now, you can get those public keys from anywhere. Like you can type them in. You can roll dice if you want and figure out some scheme to put them in. You can export them from a hardware wallet or some other application. Once you've got them in there, um, they're kind of like three bits of randomness. They're ultimately corresponding to three private keys. And I sort of understood that aspect of multi-sig for a long time. 
Um, what was interesting, uh, what is interesting about Caravan is once you've input those keys, you get an address. Caravan will create for you this multi-sig address, but you can continue to mess with some other parameters. Like you can change from mainnet to testnet. You can change the type of the address. You can change the number of required signers. Since that's going to require the same number of public keys, you're just changing the M in M of N. You can change that number on the fly. And as you make these changes, Caravan recalculates the address for you. And that's kind of cool that you can get, you sort of realize that you actually can create many, many different addresses from the same public keys, um, uh, depending on how you combine them and how you encode the way that you've combined them. But more interesting than just the different addresses is Caravan also displays for you all of the scripts, like the, the, the actual literal script, the, the redeem script when appropriate, the witness script when available. And that was interesting to watch in particular as you, you flip back and forth from, let's say, P to SH to P to WSH and then, you know, SegWit uh, wrapped or, or P to SH wrapped SegWit in the middle, that sort of intermediate uh, model between those. Those are three different address types that Caravan supports and you can switch between them on the fly. And you sort of see how this, the essential data of, you know, the number, um, you know, a, uh, M, like, you know, two in this case, and then three public keys, and then a three, and then an object multisig. That's the, that's the sort of magic spell that Bitcoin ultimately needs to get to in order to understand your intent here of creating a two of three address based upon these three keys. But you sort of see how as you move between these address types, that, that essential sequence of Bitcoin script opcodes gets carried forward back and forth from witness script to redeem script. And then in the intermediate model, they're sort of wrapped. And you can kind of see like a little bit more plainly uh, than, than I've seen previously, like the relationship uh, between those, between how, how like how a segregated witness transaction kind of is a different thing. And PDSH is a very different thing. And that there's this intermediate construction that wraps them. That was really interesting to set it, sort of see this way. For sure. And I definitely uh, recommend people use, the testnet version of Caravan, and uh, if you have if you have a uh, hardware wallet, you can use that. Otherwise, you can find a software wallet to generate uh, public keys for you. But um, you know, play around with this and actually get to see this for yourself. Yeah, I think that's really cool. A cool aspect of it. I think it goes back to a comment I made earlier on um, on on the show about. Uh, I think of Caravan as as as, as a particular like a sort of a, a newer generation historically of, of Bitcoin technology. And I think just kind of digging into that thought, um, I, you know, if you think of a lot of, of the, some of the earliest Bitcoin software that was out there, including Bitcoin D, like the official core distribution of Bitcoin, they, they do several different kinds of things all at the same time. Like there is a responsibility for determining consensus, like what is the blockchain state right now? And every full node has a uh responsibility to, to do that, to query other full nodes and to download block headers and block data and verify uh, the integrity of the blockchain and that it meets the proof of work requirements and so on. So that that's like one major thing that Bitcoin software historically has had to do. Um, Bitcoin D, of course, was the first software ever to do that, but other software also can do stuff like that. Um, and then there's another aspect to Bitcoin wallet software in particular, which is like planning transactions and like, okay, I want, let's say I've got you know, how do I create addresses that I own? Um, and how do I plan transactions around those addresses and, you know, author them and, and collect signatures? And then finally, there's, you know, how do I actually protect my funds at all, which is I use keys. And so I have to have this private data, which I protect somehow, and that I plug into the signatures and the addresses that I pull and the public keys that I use to create those addresses. Um, and these three functions of consensus, like what is the external state of the world, um, holding keys and creating and authoring transactions have 
typically started out being bundled. Bitcoin D, of course, does all those things. And, and we use this word wallet, which I hate, and I've tried avoiding it as much as I can. We use this word wallet to sort of give an arbitrary label to generic software that does some or all of these things. And so in that sense, Bitcoin, the, the core distribution is a wallet because it has keys, um, it pulls consensus, and it manages transactions for you. Um, other software like Electrum is a great example of another wallet which does all these things. It, it can hold literally software keys um, on your file system. Um, it can talk to your own keys uh, and be like, a trans like the, the, the software that writes transactions. Um, and then it can also serve as a source of consensus either, uh, by literally talking to other Electrum server nodes in the, in the network that it creates. Um, but what we're, and what we're seeing is like a, in a new generation, in my view, of Bitcoin uh, wallet software in which these functions are being separated out. And so you're having things like, for example, dedicated key stores, like, uh, like a Trezor device is a dedicated key store. The Trezor device does not really know how to author transactions, does not really know um, what the state of the Bitcoin network is. It really only knows about keys and how to create signatures for them. And then Trezor makes that work in tandem with their website, wallet.trezor.io. And that wallet is what I would call a transaction coordinator or planner. And it doesn't have your keys. Right. Like it has to talk to your treasure to get the keys. And then the website separately talks to, I'm not sure, but some servers probably on Trezor's side and they get their consensus probably from Bitcoin nodes. And so there's a separation of concerns. And that is in, in the I think the new generation of Bitcoin software that's coming out. Like so you, you should be able to independently choose those three um, areas and then connect them together. And then Caravan very much supports this model. The Caravan is 100% a transaction coordinator and planner. That it pulls consensus by default from blockstream.info, or you can plug in your own Bitcoin node if you'd like. And it pulls uh, signatures and public keys directly from your own key stores, like Trezors, Ledgers, um, Hermit, um, other software that you might be using. And, it, and by separating these concerns, I think we create leaner software that is easier to test, that has fewer bugs, that has less ways to be exploited, and is more modular and adaptable. Um, and I'm not trying to you know, at all criticize the prior generation. That generation was necessary. We needed the first Bitcoin software to do all these things because in the absence of any of them, we can't really use Bitcoin. But over time, as we can, we, over time we have the, the ability to start bundling out these various separate behaviors and allowing users to kind of choose between them. Do you think there's going to be like further unbundling or we've kind of reached the uh, limits? That's hard to say. Um, in keys, for example, like there's there, there's layers there that are really interesting in terms of key backup versus active keys that you're using, like the ways that groups might be able to manage keys. Um, so there's additional structure that lives in that segment of it. I think transaction planners for sure can get further split up. Like there's wallets, for example, which do all sorts of work. And then in addition to the work that they're doing, they also have really sophisticated features around, let's say, coin joining. Um, cool, that's a differentiating feature for wallets today, for some wallets today. But over time, maybe that turns into a totally separate application that you just interact with, that your transaction planner, optionally, you choose a mixing service and it just knows how to talk to that service about um, what you're doing. I think one of the core problems with further breaking down the system is that today we're, we're barely managing to draw these lines. And the reason we're able to draw these lines is there are some, there's one, a clear interface between what's happening on the blockchain and what's happening in, in any private world, like with keys and software. That's, that's a clean line to draw. And then keys are a line we were forced to draw. 
because originally we didn't draw that line and we let all the transaction software, the stuff that's online, that's talking to the blockchain, that's talking to users, have keys and write and produce signatures. And of course, these hot wallets get hacked. And so we were forced uh, to learn to separate keys from transaction planning software. Um, but to go further than this, to continue to split is challenging because I think we lack a a great way to talk about what do we mean when we say wallet. Like on some level, wallet is a collection of private keys and XPubs and an algorithm for producing addresses and a list of BIP32 paths and, 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 and that's a wallet. And unfortunately, different wallet software produces that same structure in very different ways and using very different standards. For single signature, this is less of an issue because the standards there, are, it's a simpler world and the standards there are, 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 are easier to, to, to adhere to. Like everyone pretty much uses BIP32. Everyone pretty much uses, for example, M44 prime zero prime zero prime as the first um, BIP32 in, uh, path to use for your, your default account, um, at least in traditional single signature, you know, P2PKH kind of world for Bitcoin. That's now, of course, different um, if you're using SegWit addresses. And if you're using multi-sig, it's super different. Like the standards there are just emerging and a lot of wallet software doesn't support them fully or it supports the feature, but implemented standard differently. Um, so there's there's a lot of noise around that. And and it, it's, we were just having a conversation yesterday in the office here in Austin um, with a lot of like, amazing people in the space. Uh, I can't even start to name them, but um, it was a really interesting discussion. And, and the, the, the end point of the discussion was, what would really advance the state of the art for everybody and allow us to further split apart, let's say, transaction planning software into these various modules and to better, better, better communicate with keys and just have everything be smoother is a protocol, for, not a standard forcing wallets to implement this exact scheme for managing addresses and XPubs and, and BIP32 space, but instead a protocol for describing a wallet's usage of those resources. And that if you could and there are some examples out there, like Miniscript is a sort of example of this, but there are simpler ideas like the descriptor framework that I think Justin Moon introduced to the group yesterday. Um, that's that, Those are really cool ways to uh, serialize uh, in a very succinct way everything that some service needs to understand a user's expectations about what is the balance in my wallet, where what are my addresses, what are, where are my UTXOs that I care about. Um, and as we delve into things like multisig and and time locks, and especially, oh my gosh, as we start to get into the world of mast and Schnorr signatures and, and all the cool behaviors that they're going to enable, um, it's going to be more and more and more important for us to continue to modularize uh, as, as engineers here. And the only way we're going to be able to achieve that is by as I, adopting some kind of a standard like, think, like the descriptor framework or Miniscript as a way for different software internally or between parties to communicate about like the set of uh, addresses and the way that a wallet, a particular wallet generates addresses on behalf of its, uh, its users. So some progress being made, but still, still a bunch of hens in the hen house. What, what do you see as next for, for Caravan? The what we've released so far is very much, it's designed to provoke dialogue. It's designed to get feedback um, in terms of bettering the user interface. It's designed to motivate uh, folks who Caravan supports uh, Trezor, Ledger, Hermit, and text entry of of information, uh, we'd love to support Gold Card and uh, you know uh, Bitbox and 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 the n other hardware wallets that are coming out and all innovating in the space here. But uh, we we needed at least some target for them to be able to hit. So by releasing Caravan in its current form, which is super functional around one address at a time, 
um, we're hoping to, to kind of start all those, uh, that, that dialogue with all these uh, folks in the ecosystem. Going forward, that one, of the, one of the first things I think that we're excited about is adding a full wallet interface to Caravan um, that today you can create one multi-signature address at a time and have a lot of flexibility around that address and then spend from an arbitrary multi-signature address. But you can't, uh, for example, have a sequence, a wallet with a, a collection of deposit and change addresses that are all nicely lined up. And, 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 and therefore, Caravan today is easiest uh, for people who aren't transacting very frequently to use. If you're a regular transactor, uh, it, it might start to get overwhelming using Caravan today. And so we are aware of that and we want to release the more complicated multiple address at a time wallet version uh, pretty soon. Um, but I think we're already getting great feedback uh, about how to make uh, a lot of parts of Caravan better uh, just by releasing the simpler one address at a time model. So I'd say that's the number one thing we're excited about. Um, we're, of course, as I said, also excited about other wallets and key makers contributing and getting Caravan, uh, getting their wallet to support Caravan. That would be really exciting. Um, we're also excited like, about all sorts of fun directions to take things in. Um, this will be a function of how much the community pushes us on these things or how much community members even want to contribute these features themselves. There's things like distributing uh, Caravan, <clears throat> for example, not through a browser, but as an Electron app. So it just runs natively on your desktop. That's kind of interesting or cool. We're not sure how much we want to invest in that effort. It seems like other folks are excited about it too. Um, there's, of course, the idea of adding, going beyond multi-sig. So Caravan today is very much for multi-sig. And what we mean by multi-sig is M of N and pretty much just that. That. What if you want M of N or some other constraint, such as uh, it's two out of three, but after six months, revert back to this one public key, one of one. That's an interesting structure for a lot of people. Um, can Caravan support that uh, and if so, how do we think about supporting that? Is that you uh, a bunch of clicks and UI dropdowns and stuff to get you to support a different um, template for how the wallet builds addresses? Or are we going to adopt, again, a more general standard like a descriptor framework or mini script or something like that to, to give you a lot of flexibility right off the bat? So you could do, from, instead of moving from M of N to some slightly different configuration, M of N could turn into an arbitrary, anything that you could express via miniscript or something like that. Those are some pretty interesting directions to take things in. Um, though I stress at the same time, part of the reason to do this open source is so that we're not the only folks responsible for moving this forward. Uh, we have a roadmap of our own that we want to keep pushing on. And what I'm describing includes part of that. But by being open source, we're hoping that other folks just get excited and start building on top of it. Uh, that would be great too. Cool. And uh, do, do you have other uh, open source projects that are uh, being incubated at, at Unchained? Well, so Caravan itself, a, it's sort of the, the, if you were to go to the GitHub page that we host Caravan out of or, or fork it yourself and use it, you're, you're getting Caravan, um, which is a React web application, but you're also getting a couple of libraries that we released alongside Caravan that are also open source. So one, uh, the, the names here aren't great, I admit, but one of them is called Unchained-Bitcoin and the other is called Unchained-Wallets, Unchained-Bitcoin and Unchained-Wallets. Um, they're both NPM, uh, are available through NPM. They're JavaScript libraries. They're designed um, for use, in, you know, potentially on a server, but uh, also in a browser context. Um, and they represent, uh, uh, the first one, Unchained Bitcoin, just represents a bunch of utility functions that we found were missing from Bitcoin JSLib, which is a totally excellent library. Uh, 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 it has a lot of great functionality and supports a lot of cutting edge stuff like, uh, you know, seg segregated witness and, and multi-sig and all this great stuff. Um, but it was missing a few important aspects that we needed 
uh, in order to really make stuff work. A great example of that, you know, for the more technical folks here is a function like validate BIP32 path. Like that function doesn't exist in um, uh, Bitcoin JS lib. And there are some functions out or some libraries out there that provide some BIP32 validation logic, but uh, we, we needed one that was that was smart enough to, for example, do things like, hey, the BIP32 path needs to be uh, fully hardened, for example. That's important, right? If, if someone is contributing to you an XPUB uh, and you want to guarantee that they've fully hardened it, you might force that validation. And so some of these more nuanced aspects of what we needed were unavailable. And so we kind of put them into just this generic library called Unchained Bitcoin. I encourage folks who are developers uh, of Bitcoin applications to go check it out. Um, more interestingly, perhaps to a lot of uh, folks in the wallet space, is the second library that we released, um, which is called Unchained Wallets. And it's really just an abstraction library. It builds common abstractions across different sources of keys, for example, across hardware wallet, supports Trezor and Ledger. And um, one, it's uh, meant to make it uh, easier for developers to just plug in and say, like, look, if I want to build an application and I want that application to be able to export a public key from a hardware wallet, I don't want to have to go learn about all the quirks of all the hardware wallets and how they behave in different browsers and the various errors that they can throw. I really just want to pass this BIP32 path and just have the code work and then I get to the public key and then I move on with my application. Um, so abstracting that part of the problem and building like a class that you can create, which is just you know export public key from hardware wallet and kind of call it and then just trust that um, it has the right hooks and behavior and warning messages and all the nice usability stuff that you would need uh, to build a good uh, interface for it. Um, so that's like one of the goals. And a second goal is, of course, to create, a st again, standards to support, to, to encourage wallet providers to be like, look, the Unchained Wallets library across these six hardware wallets you know, in the future um, has all the, has this great functionality. If you're going to build a seventh hardware wallet, of course, you want to hopefully implement that same standard. And so you can kind of easily integrate into the library, which means you can show up in applications like Caravan or anybody else that uses this library. So um, as much as with a, we're, we're talking about Caravan for the last week or so, um, there are these two backing libraries that I think are interesting for developers uh, and they might want to take a, a look at, uh, whether they're developers of applications or if they're developers of wallets. Um, I think both might be interested in taking a look. And frankly, we're also uh, uh, needing feedback about that. So if you are developing a wallet and you're looking at the Unchained Wallets library and you're like, well, how do I adapt this base class to support my new wallet I'm making? It's it's really awkward and I have all these problems. We want to hear about that. We want to hear where have we um, misunderstood the abstraction so we could improve it to make it support more and more different kinds of wallets over time. Yeah. On that note, you, you were mentioning just, uh, you know, not wanting to have to get into the nitty gritty of how uh, Trezor or Ledger or whatever else handles weird stuff. Um, those can be very finicky and they do change. <laughs> you and I have some direct experience of, of that, I think, Michael. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and one of the other things, like, uh, you know, part, part of the, the caravan um, and I think this is primarily because it's browser-based, it ends up having to communicate with wallet.trezor.io in, in order to um, communicate then with the, the Trezor device itself. The Trezor bridge. Yeah. What are things that uh, could be done by Unchained Capital or by Trezor uh, to sort of alleviate that? Because I, I know um, for a lot of people who are using Caravan, um, since this is obviously not meant for the power user. Um, extreme privacy concerns might not be um, coming to mind, but for other users, they may very well have uh, privacy issues such that they don't even want 
to ever talk to um, an outside service like that. So um, what can be done from you guys and from Trezor to kind of help that? I think the important thing to realize is that uh, Caravan is all about choice. And so, for example, if you were a Trezor user and you cared a lot about not wanting to go through connect.trezor.io because you don't want to share information with Trezor servers, um, first of all, uh, you're already using Trezor in a sophisticated way. If if that's true and you are also a Trezor user, that you you aren't using wallet.trezor.io, which is exactly the same thing is happening there, but more because they're seeing everything. Um, and you're not using any other third-party service, which also uses the Trezor Connect library, which basically means you're, you're essentially never connecting with Trezor through your browser to anything. So you have some other way that you talk to your Trezor. What is that other way? Presumably that other way is able to do things like export a public key or pass in an unsigned transaction and have you sign it. So if that's the case, you can still use Caravan. Like you can just paste in the public keys directly as text and you can copy in the unsigned transactions and paste them back in the signed transactions. But you might also just say, well, this is really annoying. I'll just use a ledger. Or over time, Unchained Capital could decide, hey, you know what? Because of issues like this, um, we're going to offer a distribution of Caravan, which is just an electron app or something similar that runs on your desktop. And in that environment, I'm not certain of this, but it's my belief that we will be able to talk to the Trezor device, not through Trezor Connect, but directly uh, by talking to the Trezor Bridge on the uh, on the on the user's computer. Um, and in that environment, there is no uh, worry about leaking information now at this point to Trezor Connect. And so that's a cool mitigation strategy and something that we might support over time. Um, Trezor themselves could decide that there's a different or better way for them to support uh, browsers or other things. Maybe they release a desktop application that doesn't use their own Trezor Connect library. Uh, and that, or, or frankly, maybe they improve the Trezor Connect library. There are actually, it's annoyingly, there are things you can't do via Trezor Connect that you can do if you just directly talk to Trezor through the bridge. Um, maybe they can achieve parity between those two environments. Uh, maybe they don't have to use Trezor Connect. I'm not an expert on their uh, risk analysis or, or, or the details of, what, of why they believe uh, they they need to do it in the way that they're doing it, but maybe there's a different path that they could take as well. So there are a lot of options here, um, and I think we'll see progress on hopefully a lot of them over time. Um, it is definitely Unchained's goal with releasing Caravan to put pressure on wallet providers to adapt their products to meet more open and better standards for users. And I really don't want to be singling out Trezor here. Like Sometimes we do that because they're so good at what they do that when they fall short of our expectations or our ideals, we can criticize them and think a little too quickly. But they're actually one of the better providers in this space, along with ColdCard. Um, Ledger, Ledger, I think, you know, they're such a poorer device for multi-sig compared to Trezor or compared to ColdCard that like, I, I feel like they need to be pressured more than almost anybody else to get their act together and make it easier and better for users of more sophisticated quorum structures to use their product. Or maybe they're just going to get left behind otherwise. To even just have a display that, you know, explains things about multi-sig that uh, Trezor does do. And that's also, I guess, uh, that, that could be a good project for a developer uh, listening who wants to better understand how Caravan works. You could make a, you know, Python desktop app. Um, if, if Electron, for instance, is not enough, um, to be able to connect through, uh, the Trezor bridge, um, perhaps someone could make a, uh, you know, a Python app that functions in the same way and share that with the community. I think a lot of people, frankly, would love an open source, super simple Python app that just boots up a little graphical interface and lets you talk directly to your Trezor without having to get, you know, the web browser or Trezor Connect involved. I think that would be really cool. 
Okay, it appears uh, Pierre's audio is totally messed up right now. Um, so I think, sadly, we're going to have to close it up uh, a little early. But um, thank you so much uh, for coming on, Drew, to uh, tell us about Caravan. Now, this has been a really great discussion, Michael and Pierre. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, and uh, we definitely want you back, uh, you know, when the, the next uh, features or products come out. Yeah, check it out on GitHub. Help out. And for everyone else, uh, come to Austin and, and visit Unchained Capital and visit the uh, Bitcoin Devs Meetup. I will proceed in two steps. I will first discuss some of the direct consequences of fiat money. And uh, in a second step, discuss some of the indirect consequences, most of, notably those that result from uh, the culture of debt, of the debt economy, uh, which is a fruit of uh, fiat money. So among the direct consequences, we have most notably political centralization and tyrannical government. Oh, these seem to be very stark assertions, um, but they follow directly from the very nature of what fiat money is. Uh, The fact that monetary interventionism involves tyrannical government, or at least paves the way to tyrannical government, is very old. It goes back to uh, the scholastic Nicholas Oresmi in the uh, 14th century and has not been stressed uh, much in the 20th century, but one of the economists who uh, stressed it a lot was Ludwig von Mises. And Mises argued as follows. This is a very important argument and uh, this is certainly something that you should remember and retain from this lecture. Mises argued the following. He said, the economic foundation for the political rule by the people Uh, that is for democratic government, as he called it, is that the government is dependent on the citizens, is financially dependent on the citizens. The fundamental political problem as soon as you have something like government is always how to control those people once they have come into office, whatever way, uh, by elections, for example. So so they show up every four years and sometimes every two years, they stand up for elections, they make a lot of promises. And then once they are in office, they turn around and they very often do different things. Different things from those that they have announced previously. Different things from those that you would think that follow quite naturally from their mandate, namely to act in the interest of the common good, in the interest of the people. So how do you make sure that these people act in the interest of the population? It's a very old problem, right? So Plato uh, called this a problem uh, in the translation, right? Quis custodiet custodius, who guards the guardsman, who watches the night watch, watchman, okay? It's a, it's a big problem. So Mises says, the way we control the government is through the budget. This is necessary in a, in a free society, if it has government, of course you can argue, well, um, government in, in the sense of uh, uh uh, a government that, that chooses the law and that makes the law is never uh, an element of a free society. That's a different issue. So Mises did not believe in what we call today anarcho-capitalism. So he believed that there was a, a role for coercive government, for, for uh, social apparatus of violence and coercion. Uh, but he says, so the way we prevent that this gets out of hand is through the budget. So we mandate the government, we elect certain people to government. And uh, it's not necessarily that uh, we elect them on the basis of uh, a certain mandate, of certain objectives, certain role that they w- wish to fulfill, we must also decide at the same time the budget, the amount of resources that they may use. To give you an example, it would not, not be sufficient to say, well, we will have a minimum government that just provides security 
services. So minimum government, is, we will just provide police forces and we'll have uh, courts uh, and, and an army and we'll just protect private property rights. This by itself, right, so this is a minimum, minimal mission, but the mission by itself does not determine the size of the government. The government may pursue this minimal program with very few resources, let's say one police officer per thousand inhabitants, or with more resources, one police officer per 100 inhabitants, one police officer per 10 inhabitants, or a personal bodyguard for everybody. Right? The policeman may be armed with uh, just a stick, he may, as, as it was the case uh, in, in, uh, in England uh, until very recently. Uh, may be armed with a, with a stick and a gun, he may have a machine gun, he may have a tank, he may have a tank and a fighter jet and so on and so on. I just see the point, right? So the mission itself does not by itself determine the amount of resources that are absorbed in the fulfillment of this mission. So it is necessary not only to define the mission, so that's the electoral platform uh, in a, a democracy, but it's also necessary to define at the same time the amount of resources that the government may use. And the population controls the government, makes sure that the government remains the agent of the population by controlling the budget. So if the government wants to extend its activities, it needs to be authorized by the citizens, according to this uh, liberal uh, vision of the political process, needs to be authorized by the citizens in the elections who vote for the parties who calls for an increase of taxes, for example. Now, that's, of course, very unpleasant, especially for, for present-day uh, politicians. We might say, yeah, if but this things had to go this way, then we would never have an increase of government activities. Right? People hate taxes, so we, they would never vote for a tax increase. Uh, quite possibly so, right? But that's precisely the point. Uh, that's precisely the point. Uh, the government could increase it, its activities only if it's validated, if it's mandated by uh, popular scrutiny, so by the general election. Now, as soon as the government gets around this, we deviate from a rule by the people and we move ever more to a rule by the elites that are not endorsed and not supported by the electorate. The first way the government can do this is by just going into debt. That's an easy route. You just go into debt, you obtain more uh, money through the financial market. And of course, the resistance there is much weaker, uh, respectively, does not exist at all. If the government, namely, if the government promises not only to restitute the, the money it has loaned out, but also to pay an interest on it. So you have voluntary cooperation with people who finance you and who hope that the government will eventually pay back out of uh, tax proceeds. So it is clear that already here, right, the democratic principle, the control of the government by the people is weakened right? and the government extends it, it, uh, its activities beyond the scope that would have been possible by taxation alone. Therefore, some Social philosophers have always called for the uh, abolition of the possibility of public debt. Immanuel Kant, most notably, uh, called for the uh, suppression of, of public debt. The government should have no right to, to go into debt. But unfortunately, he uh, called for this only in the specific case of war finance. Of course, that is, Immanuel Kant could have needed some economics class, right? because if, if you just specify, well, we rule it out for this, uh, activity, that's not sufficient because the government might finance this out of tax proceeds and then it takes out uh, a loan to finance all other spending that, that similarly goes on, right? So you cannot limit, uh, rule out uh, government debt uh, this way. Now, of course, fiat money uh, 
allows the government to take out loans to an unlimited extent. Right? Because fiat money, by definition, can pre produce without limitation, without commercial limitation, without uh, technological limitation, can produce as much of it as you wish. And as a consequence, a government that benefits from the support of a central bank, and of course, a central bank has it in its best interest to support the, the government because itself depends on uh, the legal framework upheld by the government, namely legal tender laws and monopoly privileges. So it, is, it would be ill-advised not to support the government on whom it relies. Right? So as long as the government can rely on the on its central bank, which it always can, right? it can take out virtually any volume of loans, any debt is completely out of proportion with, with its uh, current tax revenues. And that is indeed what we observed and what we have observed in the past 40 years especially since uh, the abandonment of the Bretton Woods system, so the last link to, to gold, right? so we had the establishment of pure fiat currencies. Since then, right, public debt has exploded and has typically also increased not only at a rhythm uh, 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 that was much stronger than uh, the growth of the real economy, but also much stronger than the growth of uh, tax proceeds, uh, so tax revenue for the government. So it is clear then that uh, fiat money allows for an extension of government activities that is completely out of tune with effective public support as demonstrated in elections and as uh, demonstrated by the willingness of the population to uh, vote for tax increases or certain any volume of, of taxes. So what does this mean? It means that to this extent then government becomes tyrannical. It's no longer government by the people, for the people, as you have heard it from Abraham Lincoln, the famous adage, right? but it becomes government by the elites and for the elites, uh, by the false is no longer really, they're not no longer really elected, right, because they uh, maintain themselves at power and maintain their activities at a level that is not validated by public consent, but by their possibility to access the printing press. So government turns tyrannical. For the same reason, as a second consequence, for the same reason, there is, under a fiat money regime, a tendency toward the centralization of government. Those governments who can benefit from, from a printing press, that's not the only condition that is necessary, but it's an essential condition, have always a competitive edge in comparison to other governments that cannot so rely on this source of financing. This was a very important uh, factor in the political centralization of uh, uh, Western Europe, uh, centralization, for example, within Great Britain around the, uh, the king. And so uh, the king had always a competitive edge in his conflicts uh, with, the, with the local princes and the local dukes and so on. Same thing in Germany, only much later because uh, Germany was politically united, so had a, a common monetary uh, framework and a common fiat money only much later. Uh, than, than Great Britain. But as soon as it came into being, it gave a political advantage to the central government at the expense of all local governments. Same thing again in the United States. Right? What is the role of states uh, in uh, American politics? Well, it's still, they're still much more powerful than uh, regional governments in Europe, right? but their relative power has greatly diminished in the past hundred years. That's the least thing we can say. And so the main player has become the federal government. Of course, there are juridical aspects to this. Right? There's the uh, commerce clause and, and so on. Uh, but uh, the main, uh, one of the main factors is that fiat money gives 
competitive edge to the uh, federal government in all of its conflicts with state governments. So we have political centralization. A third consequence is, and then there are various related uh, cons direct consequences. So the government, because it can e extend its activities, uh, may engage, for example, in uh, to a greater extent and for a longer period in its preferred activities, uh, first among which is uh, uh, waging war. Right? So this is much more important in the U.S. than in Europe. Right? So thanks to the printing press, thanks to the unlimited possibilities of financing military adventures, the federal government can engage in wars that are lengthier uh, and more violent, more intensive than it would have been possible if... Uh, spending would be based exclusively on tax revenue. Uh, as uh, many economists have argued, and most recently Joe Salerno, fiat money regimes were the main factor in extending World War I and World War II. So without fiat money regimes, World War I would probably have been over by 1916, maybe early 1917. At the beginning, there was great enthusiasm in all nations. Everybody was running to the front and said, yeah, we'll beat the frogs, said the Germans. And, and the, the French said, yeah, we'll beat the Bosch. That's how they call them, right? So we'll beat the Bosch. And uh, right, so they were in the war frenzy. It was often the case when you did not have a major war for long, many long years, which is not the case of the United States. Right? But it, it was the case of Germany at the time, it was the case of France at the time, so they were really rushing through the front, it was a war frenzy. So they would have agreed to pay higher taxes, have lower net revenues for themselves for a certain while. But then your cousin dies, your son dies, your brother dies, if you yourself die, well, uh, but if you survive, I mean, you, you, you very soon you uh, become tired of the war. It's just a very nasty business. And plus, I mean, they got stuck at the front. It was not the, the kind of war that they had imagined where they gloriously just run over the other country. I mean, they really got stuck. And then all the, the killing took place and it, nothing moved and it was just killing and killing and cost and cost. You grow tired of this very, very soon. So if this had to be financed out of tax revenue, the war would have been over very fast. It was not over very fast because there was a printing press. So the government could go on and suck ever more resources indirectly out of the economy to finance the war effort. And this was especially terrible if we consider that most of the killing occurred in the last years of the war and especially in the last months. And so many, many millions of people could have survived uh, had it not been for the printing press. Same thing in World War II. Another uh, pet scheme of, of governments that hitherto has been more important in Europe than in the United States, but is becoming now more important in the United States as well, is the welfare state. Uh, so clearly without fiat money and the possibility of financing government activities, the welfare state would not go very far. Uh, it would exist, but it would be rather limited uh, because few people would uh, be ready to pay much higher taxes uh, to finance welfare handouts, which is only one thing, but especially the, the uh, apparatus, the bureaucratic apparatus that is the intermediary of those handouts, right? So few people would be willing to finance the welfare industry. And another uh, direct consequence, more or less direct consequence uh, of uh, fiat money is, of course, a tendency for the price level to be higher than it otherwise would have been. And this means uh, 
in practice that the price level becomes permanently, uh, that we permanently have positive inflation rates. Okay, it's a direct consequence of a fiat money regime. In a pure market economy, which we only had natural monies like gold and silver, there would be a natural tendency for the price level to diminish. We would have what is called uh, deflationary growth because the money supply, money production tends to lag uh, in, in an in a economy based on very strong capital accumulation and technological progress. It tends to lag behind the growth rates of the real uh, uh, economy, this, of, of the production of goods and services. Therefore, there prevails a tendency for prices to drop. This is what we had until uh, World War I, by and large, in all European countries. Uh, so you can look at the, the standard uh, uh, textbooks and economic history in the 19th century, and you will find that while the price level diminishes in Great Britain, by and large, throughout all the 19th century, it diminishes in France, uh, by and large, throughout all of the 19th century. So, I mean, with the exception of the Napoleonic Wars, right? So let's say from 1815 to 1914, by and large, there, there is no such thing as inflationary growth that is a growing economy in the context of an environment in which prices rise, in which the price level rises. Virtually never happens. What you do have is growth with either with a stable price level or with a shrinking price level. Same thing in Germany, same thing in the United States. Some of the, I believe that the highest growth rates in American history uh, were realized so you had Chinese growth rates, right, in the uh, last third of the 19th century, and most of this was deflationary growth. Uh, so this is a natural element of a free economy. Fiat money allows the government, of course, to, to create more money than would otherwise have been created. So the price level is always higher. It does not mean that it becomes positive. Might, the deflation might just be lower than it otherwise would have been. And so rather uh, than having uh, uh, the price level diminish 5%, it only diminishes 2%. That's possi possible. But in actual practice, uh, the production of fiat money is always pushed to the point where it creates positive inflation rates. And this is no accident. It's actually something that has been uh, wished for by monetary authorities out of considerations that we would call Keynesian. Okay, which are much older than uh, Keynesian economics as, that we know from the 1930s. And this is a very old idea that the more money you spend, the better it is for the economy. And it is a very old idea that it should be uh, an objective of monetary policy to discourage the hoarding of money. Uh, so people are likely to hoard money if the price level shrinks. If the price level shrinks by 5% per year, then you can earn a return on of 5% on your savings by just holding money, by just holding gold coins or silver coins in your pocket. So there's a strong incentive to build up savings in the form of cash holding. So according to very old ideas, this, this would be very, very bad. Right? This is the vampire economy. You suck the blood out of the economy and oh, you paralyze everything. Right? So therefore, we should discourage this. 
And money cranks of the 19th century, they, they've argued, well, we should create money of a sort that the price level always rises, or maybe we should start clipping money, right? So pay a tax on banknotes, so every, every month or so, uh, the, the, the value of the banknote is being reduced, so that people have an incentive to spend it as fast as possible. The clipping was somewhat technically difficult to realize. It's difficult also to sell a banknote to anybody if he has, he knows that it will be clipped at the end of the, the month or something like this. Right. So the, the best way technically to do this was to create so much money, fiat money, that the price level would always rise positively and which represents some sort of a taxation on the purchasing power of money. Right. So a price level rises 2% every year or 3% every year then it is as if somebody had clipped 2 or 3% out of your coin every year. So you have an incentive not to save in the form of cash, but to spend it sooner rather than later. So that was not an accident. Uh, it was an, it, the result of uh, planned intervention in the, in the economy. Now, something happened that was only anticipated by a few people, but was also anticipated at least by some people, and, and uh, so willed, <laughs> namely, an encouragement of the credit market, that is, of uh, a tendency toward the debt economy. All throughout the 20th century, there's a tendency for the credit market to grow. Governments, firms, and households started taking out more and more loans. Credit for households was virtually unknown before the 20th century. Right? Only very poor households needed loans. Uh, regular households that could live off, uh, off the yearly income, so never had any loans, never had any debt. That was also a cultural fact, right? the prevalence of Christian views on, on a just uh, economy and orderly conduct and so on created this result. Firms were, eventually, were essentially uh, financed out of uh, equity. This was the owner's capital that was being used. There was virtually no credit to, to firms. Maybe a little commercial credit right, in your relationships with uh, customers and with suppliers. Uh, so you supply uh, merchandise and you're being paid two months uh, thereafter. So credit existed to that extent, but not to finance any uh, fixed investment or so on. Governments, of course, had always credit. Right? All governments were always into, in, into debt since time immemorial. So if you have a fiat money system, which allows us to create a positive uh, price inflation, then, of course, there exist very strong incentives to go into debt for all sectors. Let us first consider a household, because this is the experience that is universally shared by all of us. Right? Some of you guys are, are young, so you don't have yet uh, revenue, you're still in school and so on, but I promise one of the first things that you will do once you get out of school is to take out a, a loan, take out a mortgage, and to buy an apartment or a house. Uh, have you ever wondered why, why you do this? And why you do not first accumulate money and then buy the house? Well, I've already given you the answer implicitly. Well, you, today would make no more sense to just accumulate, to stack cash for, let's say, 10 years and then buy the house. I mean, you would lose a lot of money in those 10 years. Right? And that's why we buy first the house. And then, and then we can actually eventually even profit from this uh, credit. Right? So you take a loan uh, as high as you can serve with your service with your present income. Uh, let's say you have uh, annual income the first year after you get out of college of $50,000, and you take out a loan uh, on which you pay, let's say, 15, 
$1,000 per year, or is it $12,000 per year, $1,000 per month, right? and which uh, would be uh, in the order of whatever, $200,000. And then you buy a nice house, a nice apartment, or something like this. Now, what happens in an inflationary economy is that eventually your revenue will increase. Of course, it also increases because you become ever smarter, you become more experienced, right? And so on. For this reason, too, the value of your, your work increases. But let's say if you stay even as dumb as you are now, <laughs> as all prices progress, so will your revenue. More money will be used within the economy, so companies will compete for the existing factors of production, among which is your labor force by spending more and more money. So your revenue will increase. Now that means that if you get into debt at a fixed interest rate, servicing this debt will become ever lighter, a light, an ever lighter burden on your, on your budget. So as you go along, right, the first five years or so are difficult, and uh, at 10 years it's much easier than the first five years. At 20 years, right, your, your revenue is almost doubled right, in, in monetary terms, and your debt is still or the debt services at the level as it was in the first year. So it's a great advantage right, to go into debt and to pay present expenditure by, by debt rather than by first ac accumulating savings. That's why we do it. Okay. Now the same incentive exists for firms. It exists in fact for all market participants. Right? A firm has a strong incentive to finance uh, fixed investment machines, uh, real estate, and so on that it needs, equipment with a credit. And if this is a long-term investment, right, so uh, for 10 years or 20 years or, or whatever, because it can expect that its revenue, if it stays in business, right, it can expect its revenues to increase under the impact of the general price inflation. So what is burdensome at first becomes ever lighter subsequently. And the same incentive finally also exists for governments, right? because governments, due to the progression of prices, can expect an increase of tax revenue in the future. So they too have an incentive to go into debt, even if they did not have this wish in the first place, which of course they usually have. So a fiat money system, therefore we might say, creates a generalized rush into leverage. Right? Less and less Spending is financed out of equity, out of your own money, and more and more is financed out of the credit market. Now you might say, where does this money on the credit market come from? Everybody has an interest to take out loans, but who provides the loans? Well, in a fiat money system, people have a very strong incentive also to invest in credit market-related financial instruments. Because how do you save? Right? It's no longer worthwhile to keep your money in cash because then you lose. So you need to choose forms of savings that will compensate you for the loss of purchasing power of the money unit. So you need to buy something that increases in monetary value with the general price inflation, such as real estate, such as stocks, so shares in companies. Or you need to buy something that maybe that nominally stays at the same value but is linked to a, a revenue that compensates you for the loss in purchasing power. And that is uh, typically the case with credit market instruments. Right? So you buy a life insurance. You put money on a savings account. Right? So the bank promises you, well, we'll pay you 1.5%. That's great. Uh, of course, 1.5% today is less than the price inflation rate, so you still lose. But you lose less than you would have lost if you had kept your money in cash.
So in a fiat money system in which the central bank creates a positive price inflation rate, both the demand for credit increases and the supply of credits also increases. And it's a huge boon for the credit market. And of course, it is therefore also a huge boon for financial intermediaries, such as banks, commercial banks, and insurance companies, and also investment funds. That is the reason, ladies and gentlemen, why financial markets had such a spectacular growth spurt in the past 100 years. It's a well-known fact uh, among historians that was uh, first firmly established at the end of the 1960s uh, by a British uh, statistician of the name of uh, Raymond Goldsmith. Right. So Goldsmith had a look at well, all major uh, Western countries and he found out, well, I mean, the uh, financial markets grow more rapidly than the real economy. It's amazing. So how does this come? Right. And this tendency has actually increased in the past 40 years. Right. The growth of the financial sector is much more rapid than the growth of the real economy. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is of course a cultural feature of our time. Right? Uh, lots of well-paid people on Wall Street and so on, all the bonuses and so on. Uh, that make the news and the envy of the other citizens sometimes. Uh, but it's the direct consequence of a fiat money system. Now, there are other cultural features directly related to this debt economy and to this financialized economy. I will highlight four of them here. I've discussed others uh, in my book. Uh, four things that can be relatively easily explained. The first consequence is... Um, a tendency to encourage in our decision-making a short-term perspective, or in other words, a certain haste. We need to hurry up to take out credits as soon as possible. We need to hurry up to, uh, to gain revenue as soon as possible. Uh, you need constantly to have revenue uh, because you cannot sit on your, on your savings. The savings lose their value uh, if you just hold them in cash. So you need to have constantly revenue. You need to take out loans as quickly as possible so that the burden then becomes lighter uh, relatively soon. Right? This is, of course, something that characterizes financial markets as an extreme short-term orientation. Most uh, uh, of, of the money managers that we call investors, uh, which are uh, really just paid intermediaries, have an extremely short-term orientation, uh, which results from this. But it's, it would be bad just to pinpoint uh, the evil guys on Wall Street and so on if, if you consider carefully your, your own behavior, and I do this with my own behavior as well, right, and compare this to what you've seen in your grandparents and what you've learned about people living in the 19th century, you'll see that we are moving at an incredible speed. Of course, you can look at this positively and say, yes, I mean, we are so much faster today and, uh, and, and so on and so on. But the, the, this haste, this, uh, this lacking calm, lacking serenity, and so on, results to some extent from the fact that there are very strong material rewards that are associated with getting into debt soon and then making sure you can always uh, bring in uh, revenue to service the debt. So there are two uh, related consequences that immediately spring from it. One is uh, increasing materialism. So we come in a fiat money system out of self-interest, more materialistic than we would have been under a natural monetary system. We need to watch our investments. We cannot just sit on cash. We need to watch our investments constantly. 
even if you're a dentist or you're, you're a carpenter and so on, you need to know something about uh, the stock market because, or your insurance market or something because part of your savings are invested with these guys. In a natural monetary order, you could just sit on cash. Well, you could be robbed, not be riskless, but uh, right, you wouldn't have to worry about other people. Uh, now suddenly you have to worry about other people, become materialistic, especially also since it is so much more difficult to recover from a loss of uh, uh, of wealth. Uh, once you've lost, it's very difficult to, to catch up. Another uh, related um, cultural consequence is insatiability. I need, again, to start first with a mon natural monetary system and then compare our behavior under fiat money system. Under a natural monetary system, investments that we make uh, underlie well, uh, decreasing returns. And we can ac accumulate ever more capital, but we cannot invest that capital, these savings, we cannot invest them always at the same returns as before. Right? We're constantly, by increasing our savings, we're constantly increasing the supply on the capital market. Now, capital market in the Austrian sense. Right? And as a consequence, the return, that the, the, the earnings that you can derive from such investments invariably uh, diminish. Okay. So that means then that in a, in a free society, there, are, there, there is an inbuilt break in the accumulation of capital and especially in the investment of capital in order to earn revenue out of it. At some point, the, the returns become so low that this is no longer an incentive uh, for savings. So the savings that then occur have other purposes, right? They, they finance our personal projects, which are not associated with a monetary return. They finance philanthropic ac activities, church activities, and so on, which are not associated with a monetary return. So that's the natural tendency in a free society. And this is, if you look at what happened in the 19th century, especially in the U.S., that's exactly what happened. Things change under a fiat money system. Because under a fiat money system, you can always increase the return on your own money by leveraging your investment. And this is called the leverage effect. Now, it's difficult to explain this in a, in a few sentences for, for the non-experts, but so you look this up right on, on, on the internet. Maybe to give you one example. Let's say you have an investment in a firm uh, that requires 100 units of money, $100,000. Let's say 100 units of money, and it gives you a return of 10%. Let's say you produce uh, pence. Right? Producing the pence, you earn 10% return. Now, if you finance this, all of this with your own money, then what you will earn is 10%. But you might, if you can obtain a credit at a lower interest rate than the return that you earn by producing pence, for example, you can, if you can obtain a uh, credit at 5% from a bank, right, then you can leverage the return on your own investment. If you finance 90 units of your investment with a loan of 5%, and only 10 units with your own money, then what will be the return on your own money? Well, okay, you still earn 10 units of money through the investment, right? and now out of this uh, revenue, you have to pay your creditor. Right? So you pay him 5% on 90 units of money, so 4.5 units of money. Right? So your, your net revenue is no longer 10 units of money, it's uh, 10 minus 4.5, so 5.5. Now, these 5.5 is the return on your personal investment of 10. 
you have invested only 10 units of money of your own money and you earned 5.5. Now, how much of a return is this in percent? It's not 5.5. 55. It's 55. Right? You've invested 10 and you earn 5.5. It's 55% return. Okay? That's the leverage effect. The leverage effect results when you can take out loans at a lower rate than the rate that you realize, that the yield that you realize through your investment. Right? It's a risky undertaking. Okay. That's the thing you can do. So you see, in a fiat money system, which the credit market develops so well, right, as we've seen, there are very strong incentives for people to rush into leverage. And so they can always, by going into more leverage, to become, if they become more daring, or if they are sufficiently daring, they can always, always a possibility for them to increase the return on their investment. So the saturation point that would obtain in a natural economy no longer exists, if only you are sufficiently risk-friendly. And there's another uh, related aspect to this, namely that, of course, um, going into debt, taking out additional loans is easier if you are already very rich. Because if you're already very rich, you own houses and, and apartments and so on, then you can offer this as a collateral, right, as a security to back up the loan. It's not possible for people who are not yet rich. So the perverse consequence then in a fiat money system is that the richer the richer you are, the stronger is your incentive to keep, to remain fully invested. On a natural monetary system, rich persons at some point will say, okay, the return on my investment diminishes on and on. There's no more point. Uh, it becomes pointless to, to seek other investments. Well, now I will just become more philanthropic. In our system, this is reversed. The richer you are, the greater are the incentives to remain fully invested and to neglect philanthropic act, uh, activities, except to the extent that it's necessary to keep a good public image right, uh, with the rest of the citizens so that they do not torpedo your activities through the political process. Uh, so genuine philanthropy disappears and is being replaced by fake philanthropy, and which in any case is at a lower level than it would be in a natural uh, economic order. A third uh, major consequence is uh, increased depend uh, dependence on other persons. Right? Again, if your savings are in cash, you do not depend on anybody. You have gold coins or silver coins in a hole digged into your garden or under your pillow. Okay, They can be taken away. They can be robbed, so it's not riskless. But their value does not depend on what other persons do. It's different if you give a credit to somebody or if you buy a share in the company. Then you become dependent on the good behavior of those other persons, on their faithful accomplishment of their, of their mission. A good friend of mine in, in, in France, uh, is now a professor emeritus, he always stressed that this is, was wonderful because uh, it created greater social interdependence. We care more for others and so on. And so he says, it was a positive side to this process. And, well, I have difficulties finding much joy myself by considering this, right? Because, again, it is not a genuine interest for others. It's a very interested, selfish uh, concern that we have for others. We have become interested in what others do because their behavior will have negative repercussions on us. Not because we are genuinely interested in that person, because we love this person and we want that it, well, develops according to the best of his abilities. We become selfish in our concern for others.
And what we have here is not a genuine integration, a voluntary integration, but what Wilhelm Röpke once called a forced integration. Integration is not always, an increase of the division of labor is not always beneficial, both from, from an economic point of view and from a political point of view, can also be forced, right? so they can be excessive. That is certainly something that results uh, necessarily in a fiat money system. And a related aspect of this is the increasing politicization of society. Right? Because we have increasing more concerns for others in a, in a debt-ridden economy, a debt-ridden economy is fragile. Right? If one, uh, we, we know this uh, uh, in, because in present-day financial jargon, there's the concept of um, a bank that is too big to fail, TBTF. Uh, so big, too big to fail market participant. If this bank, uh, let's say, if Goldman Sachs uh, goes bankrupt, well, then the entire financial market will melt down. Because if Goldman Sachs is no longer able to pay back its loans, its, its credits, right, then that, this means that other people, other market participants who have loaned to, uh, to Goldman Sachs will see their assets melt in the sun. So they will not be able to, to pay back their creditors and so on. Right? So you have, get a chain reaction. So the stronger is the level of debt in any economy, the stronger is therefore the selfish concern for the others. And the stronger is our incentive to try through the political process to control the behavior of others. So fiat money creates a tendency toward the politicization of society. A fourth and last uh, consequence that I should like to uh, point out is uh, what uh, my German colleague uh, Thorsten Polite has called um, collective corruption. So he has an article out on the subject in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, uh, I think of 2012. Very good article. I recommend all of you to, to, to read this. So what he points out is that in a fiat money system, um, no individual market participant, no household, no firm, uh, certainly not the government, has an interest in abolishing the system or in discouraging the foundations of the system. Nobody has an interest to abolish the fiat money system and uh, uh, put in its place uh, a gold standard, a silver standard, or currency competition, anything that would limit the amount of money that can be produced. Because as soon as this happens, right, you get a collapse uh, of the financial industries, and in any case, right, credit becomes much less readily available. It would be necessary to completely change the way we do things, that is to change our culture. We could no longer rely that much on debt. We would have to rely more on our own means. We'd have to save first, right? lead a frugal life, and then eventually uh, pay our way out of our, sa our savings. So nobody, in, even though one might consider, yeah, the, the, the overall consequences, both economic and cultural, are terrible of the system, right? it is in nobody's material interest in the short run to abolish the system. Because everybody stands to lose in the short run. So even though uh, we might, if, especially if we learn a little bit of Austrian economics, we, we see right the, the perverse uh, working of the system from an overall point of view, from our own short run material, materialistic uh, interest, it is, you know, uh, we, we wish to keep it up, we wish not to abolish it. That's collective corruption. Okay. In uh, the economic theory, it is called a rationality trap. Right? It's, a, it's a difference between um, well, 
an overall point of view and an individual point of view. And a rationality trap is the typical consequence of government interventionism. You see this in many places. You see, here's a very dramatic example, but you see it also elsewhere. For example, uh, higher education. Right? So government subsidizes higher education. So higher education comes at a lower cost than it would be on the, on the market. It allows you individually to gain a competitive edge as compared to all the other evil guys who want to have the same jobs that you aim for. So you, you're interested in doing this, but of course, if everybody, right, t takes out the, the, these diplomas, their value is diminished. So the, the same types of activities that in former times were being pursued by, by uh, employees without a university diploma, without uh, no graduates uh, or just had barely a high school diploma, are today being carried out by people with master's degrees and PhDs. It's another typical example of a rationality trap. Right? It's in each, each one's individual interest to maintain the system, maintain easy access to higher education. But from an overall point of view, it's probably an enormous waste of resources, uh, both time and material resources. So rationality traps, co uh, collective corruption, a typical consequence of government interventionism. That makes, by the way, for, uh, for uh, it's, it's a nice subject if you want to analyze this in different areas, how government intervention creates rationality traps. Uh, it's a nice area for uh, papers, term papers that you write, or maybe a master's thesis or something like this. In conclusion then, so I've uh, demonstrated that we can apply economic analysis to explain cultural transformations, and that a particularly important example is the case of fiat money. Uh, fiat money has a very profound impact on our culture, and it's difficult to see it unless you step back and you consider the evolution of a long time. If you just consider economic history of the past 10 years, it would escape your notice, because you are yourself part of that culture. So you're only being awestruck if you compare it to previous times and then wonder what explains these changes in our behavior, this, this change in the way how we do things as compared to how they were being handled by our ancestors. Of course, there are many other factors that also come into play, but fiat money is a major source. And probably, right, this, this phenomenon of collective uh, corruption explains why it is so difficult right, to, um, to change the monetary system and to, to change also the political system, right, because everybody stands to lose in the short run, not only materially, but also because such a change would defy, would challenge, would overthrow our traditional way of life to which we have become accustomed. We are, we are culturally unfit in a way uh, for uh, a natural economy. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't dare to bring it about. Right? Ultimately, it's a question of courage and of insight uh, and of the will. The will can change under the impact of, of prudence and of insight, and I hope that I've provided today one little element to encourage you in this way. Thank you for your attention. And that's, this is part of the reason that I'm an admirer of Carl Jung, because Jung makes it very clear that, see, he was very interested in the barriers to enlightenment, because if there's, a, if there's such a thing as being enlightened, let's say, then why isn't everyone enlightened? If it's just a matter of, t of taking the, the glorious um, uh, route and, and following your bliss, let's say, it's like, well, that sounds pretty easy. Why isn't everyone enlightened? And, 
But Jung's thinking isn't like that at all. You know, he, he believed that in order to transform your personality, that first of all, you had to be disciplined, that's for sure. But you also had to integrate that part of you that was terrible and capable of breaking rules and make it part of you. And so then, and I really like that idea. Well, here, here's an example. So about 20 years ago, I would say there was a newspaper headline um, in one of Canada's major newspapers. And it was the Minister of Foreign Affairs at that time, Lloyd Axworthy, and he was talking about what had happened with uh, Milosevic in, in the former Soviet Union in Yugoslavia and the atrocities that were being committed. And he said that he, that he was caught unawares by that because he didn't have the imagination for that kind of evil. And I thought, well, you know, you think that what you're doing is signaling your virtue by making a statement like that. But m from my perspective, all you're doing is stating your cowardice and your historical ignorance, because if you're going to be Minister of Foreign Affairs, you bloody well better have imagination for that kind of evil. Because if you don't, then anyone who does wins. They beat you. And so, you, you know, in, again, in the Harry Potter stories, you see, he's touched by evil, right? He, he actually has a soul fragment that's embedded within him that's as black as anything can possibly be. That's why he could talk to snakes. But without that, he wouldn't be able to have any victory. And that's exactly right psychologically. Unless you can think the way that an evil person thinks, then you're defenseless against them. Because they'll go places you can't imagine and then they win. And so the best man I've met, it was interesting even when I was in junior high and high school, because most of my friends dropped out, you know, by the time they were grade 10, thereabouts. And a lot of them were guys who developed physically, they're pretty powerful, and they're just damn sick of putting up their hand to go to the bathroom. It's like, you know, they're not doing that anymore. One of my friends got kicked out when he sort of challenged the gym teacher, you know, physically. And the gym teacher, he could do an iron cross. He was a tough guy, and so it was no trivial matter for my friend to stand up to him, but he got expelled anyways. But, you know, I noticed that it wasn't, it, it was often the kids whose character I admired that either quit or got expelled, and they were the tougher guys who were just sick and tired of following rules that didn't take into account their character, and then they'd go off and work in the oil rigs or whatever, and you could do that in Alberta at that time. And that was really hard work, you know? So it wasn't like they were necessarily taking the easy path. But, like, a harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. And you know, you also see that, um, like one of the central <clears throat> female stories, let's say, um, if the hero archetype is the central male story, there are variants of hero archetypes that are relevant to women, and one of them is Beauty and the Beast. And you know, Beauty isn't interested in the guy who isn't the beast. She's interested in the guy who's the beast, and that's exactly right, but he, she's interested in the guy who's the beast that can be civilized and disciplined, right, and who can use that in the service, well, let's say, of a family.